Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth podcast. This is your host, Mark Boudis. On today's show, I brought on a special guest, Karen Tibbles. Karen is the author of the recently published book, Persuade, Don't Preach, Restoring Civility Across the Political Divide. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me. I think your your the, your book is about as timely of a topic as we could have. Uh, we just finished an uh, incredibly politically charged and divided election. And on top of that, we're coming up on the holidays, which will be different this year, but uh, because of the virus, but friends and family are still going to get together who may have been on opposite sides politically. And we're still divided, even though the election is over. <laughs> that is true. So that uh, so the election w- was over, but yeah, the division is, is still going to be there. Um, yeah. How'd you decide to, to write a book on this topic or how'd you, how'd, how'd you get, you know, come to it? Wow. <laughs> That's a loaded question. It's a good, it's a good first question. I think. <laughs> um, well, I had a career in the pharmaceutical industry for many, many years. Um, and then I had a religious calling, um, which is weird to talk about on a finance podcast, but you know, <laughs> That's just the way things are. Um, And I left that job and I went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I found this this theory, this psychological theory that is that the book is based on uh, called moral foundations theory. And, um, you know, what I had done in my in my career is I had um, uh, I was doing market research and I was helping to launch new drugs. And I really was an expert in consumer behavior. But when I found this theory, I just totally changed the way I looked at things and everything I thought I knew about how people act as individuals um, got challenged. And now I understand that people act as part of a tribe, which is what we're seeing going on in the political arena. So I found this theory and it changed the way I looked at the world. And then I would talk to people and they didn't quite see what I was seeing. So I saw an opportunity. I saw a need actually for me to explain the way I interpreted the theory and how it applied to the world around and how you could use it. So that's why I wrote the book. Nice. Now you mentioned the seminary and obviously it's not a topic we talk about a lot on our financial podcast, but it's, it's one that's interesting. What, when you, so you go to the seminary, what happens when you finish the seminary? Do you go to a, a job? Do you, is it a school where you come out with some kind of degree? Yeah, well, I have a master's in religion Okay. Um, from the seminary. Um, many people go, they get a master's of divinity where they are either preparing to go to a church or preparing to be a chaplain. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Well, actually, what I thought I was going to do um, was I thought I was going to start an organization to support people who wanted to deal with the issues of conflicts in their business life and their religion and help people deal with that sort of conflict. And I actually did start that organization um, and with, with a couple other women and it's up and running, but I decided it wasn't for me to do long-term. So we, I started the organization mm-hmm. and I did my thesis at, for my master's on um, how 
people in my religion, which is Quakers, had applied their uh, faith to their business life. And it actually relates to the topic of this um, podcast because um, Quakers were very, very successful uh, business people in the um, 18th and 19th centuries. And one of the reasons was because they developed a clear set of rules about how you ran your business, which helped them manage their debt levels. Mm-hmm. And because they actually set the tone for how um, what what was expected of a, of a business, and it turned out to be a very successful way to run a business. That they didn't do it because they wanted to right. be successful. They did it because of religious reasons. Um, but it turned out to work really well. And they were the first um, first people to set out rules for bankruptcy. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You can, you know, you look at, you know, business now and what drives success or what, you know, principles, and you can trace a lot of it back, going back, you know, hundreds of years. And the fact that they manage their debt levels, it's something that people have so much problems with now. And it's one of the, the leading issues that, that people have. So it's funny how a lot of this stuff can be, you know, simplified. And one of the famous books, um, you know, that for someone in personal finance is called The Richest Man in Babylon. And it just takes these simple principles of, you know, saving more than you're spending. And, you know, like you said, with the Quakers, managing debt and, you know, doing that, you can set yourself up for success personally and, and in business. Yeah, well, they had a concept they called just debt. It's like just war, but just debt. So mm-hmm. is debt acceptable and and to be used appropriately? And um, and so they had these rules but for what what was a just debt. So one day I'll write a book called Just Debt. <laughs> <laughs> so the book that you that you released when it came out in May, April. April. So it, it's. You know, obviously, like we were saying, how timely it was, um, but it's not something you can just slap together. How long, you know, when did you actually start writing on on the topic? Well, actually, it's my second book on the topic. Oh, okay. The first book, um, the the first book I wrote was about how the theories applied to marketing, which is what I did for a living. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the book is a repeat of what I wrote in the marketing book. I mean, I, I updated it and changed it um, to... to take out the marketing examples and put in political examples instead. So the focus is different, but the guts of it are really the same. Um, so I actually started on it about two and a half years ago. I started on the first book. Um, and then um, last year I met with a publisher's rep actually last November. So almost exactly two years, almost exactly a year ago. And um I talked about with her about publishing it and she was very interested, but the timeline was going to be really long. Um, and so I decided to self publish this one also. Um, it was a quicker timeline and I felt a sense of urgency and I didn't know why, but I did. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say two and a half years in total, but part of that was publishing the first book. Okay. And yeah, I mean, there's, always been political divide. There's always probably going to be political divide. And like you said, the election didn't stop it. Um, but, you know, if we start looking at the, the topic of it, um, how do we approach that? If, you know, we, we how do we understand, you know, people on both sides, how do we start understanding each other? How do we make a better environment than, you know, this, this divisive environment that we're in right now? Well, the basic premise behind the book is that 
basically what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years is that our social and political beliefs have become aligned. Before that, you used to have conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. You don't anymore. So that's exacerbated the divide. We didn't have it quite like this before. So that's something new. So you're saying that but, but people are on the extremes. So. On, well, it's not just the extremes, but everything in your life works together as opposed to something working one way and another thing working the other way. So they sort of end up in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they balance each other out. And that doesn't happen anymore. So when you understand that, you understand that what's going on is, is that underneath the divide is a divide of morals, what Jonathan Haidt calls moral foundations. So our fundamental belief systems are really driving the division. And you have to understand what those are. And then once you start to understand it, you can start to see it. You know, first of all, you know, we're, we're just, they're invisible to us. We don't ever think about what our fundamental beliefs are and realize that the people who are acting in the way we find so bizarre or odd or that we really hate actually have a, an a philosophical underpinning that leads them to act that way that actually makes some sense. And there's some validity to it. And if we want to connect, if we, if we can understand that, then we can perhaps start to talk to get each other in a way that we can hear each other. Mm-hmm. And what's the first step to understanding that? How, how, how does someone get started with that? Read my book. <laughs> <laughs> But you could read Jonathan Haidt's book also um, on moral foundation theory. It's called The Righteous Mind. Mm-hmm. But there's, just to give you a short primer, um, there are five moral foundations that Haidt has described. I add some more things to it because I think it's a little bit too simplistic. But also I'll focus on the five that he talks about. But I'm going to use my names. So the first one is belonging community. And the really the group that we belong to and how close a tie we have to it really determines a lot of the rest of it. Then there's the degree to which we have um, respect for authority. And then there's the the sacredness and there's care for others and fairness. And what we find is that liberals tend to be extremely high on care for others and fairness and conservatives tend to be high approximately evenly across all of them. And that, what happens is that when the liberals look at what the conservatives are doing, they think what the conservatives are doing is unethical. Mm-hmm. And conservatives think what the liberals are doing is unethical because they're working from these different patterns of moral foundations. But if you can understand what's underneath them, then you start to see that it's not unethical, it's a different ethical belief system. And we actually, you know, all have the same five. It's just a different pattern, different importance. Mm-hmm. So what I say when I do my presentations to groups um, is that we all have the same five moral foundations. We have different interpretations of the foundations and different importance to the foundation. And it's those interpretation and the importance that leads to the conflict. And, you know, we started off before, you know, talking about the beginning of the book and how it, you know, even the title of the the book about um, persuading and not preaching. I think what at least I see, and I'm sure it's kind of common, is that um, everyone has a tendency to preach and try to push people towards your way of thinking. 
And you see it all the time. It has the uh, the opposite effect. It you know forces that person to even more passionate about what they what they believe in. Um, and I guess that's that's the normal behavior, correct? Yeah, and the academic research shows that that's exactly what happens. The more forcefully you make your point, the more people protect them, the, their own belief system and become even stronger in it. And I use an Aesop fable to, to explain this, um, which is that uh, the sun and the wind decided to see which one was more powerful. And the way they were going to decide which one was more powerful was which one could make the traveler take off their cloak. So the wind goes first and blows as hard as it can. And of course, the traveler holds onto their cloak even more tightly, which is exactly what happens when we preach. And then the sun came next and warmed up the earth. And the traveler, of course, took off their cloak and relaxed and sat on the cloak. So of course, the sun was more powerful. And that's what the book tries to convey, is that if you can talk to another person in a way that makes them relax, that makes them feel like you're on their side, then they'll listen to your point. And, you know, not trying to simplify things, but what is there certain language that that enables someone to 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 uh, persuade versus versus preach a certain way of talking? Um, you know, how to approach topics? How does someone you know go about trying to, to change their, their behavior on that? Well, the research shows there's actually three techniques that have been proven to change people's minds. Um, I talked the, the one in, in, in the that I spend the most time on in the book and that was the whole book is called moral reframing. But there's two other ones. I do mention them in the book, but I don't spend a lot of time on them. Uh, one is, and a, the second one is deep canvassing, which um, some uh, political groups are starting to use it. There's studies that have, there's one study that has been shown to prove that it, it shifts about 10% of people's perceptions. And that's just basically having deep conversations with somebody where they get a chance to talk about what they believe and then you get a chance to talk about what you believe. But you give the other person the chance to talk first um, and and then you try to come to a common understanding and it, it's about a 10 to 15 minute conversation. That's deep canvassing. And third one I'm not gonna talk about, but the book is mostly about what's called moral reframing, right? Called ethical zone reframing. And that's, learning how to talk in the other person's belief system. For example, I said that the um, the liberals are really high in the care for others and fairness, and the conservatives are a little bit lower. So if a conservative wants to convince a liberal of something, if they can learn to talk in the harm or care for others uh, language or the fairness language, then they're more likely to convince them. Conversely, if a liberal wants to convince a conservative they talk about in respect for authority and sacredness, then they're going to be more likely to convince them. And so once you start seeing those different moral foundations that are underneath everything and you start being able to use that language, then people can start to hear you. And as far as applying this to, let's say, Thanksgiving dinner, um, when I'm sure there's going to be interactions and inevitably political talk will will come up what's the best approach is it that that um, you know technique you mentioned is it to uh, avoid the topic at all you know you say three things you shouldn't talk about are religion politics and money with with uh, friends and family or is it to change the topic if you know if it does come up and and there's it gets it gets heated 
Well, if you want to avoid the topic or change the topic, that's fine. That's that's a good that's a good strategy. If it works for you, that's great. If you can't do that or you don't want to do that, I'm presenting an alternative, and it's going to be in my newsletter on Monday, which will drop Monday morning. Um, on what else you can do, and what I'm suggesting is that instead of talking about the election or the people involved and making it heated. What you can do is start to identify those values that I'm talking about, the moral foundation, and really start to try to relate to the other person on what what moral foundations are important to them and how that influenced uh, how that influences the way they think. And to stay away from the election itself, but really talk about the things that are very important to us that we never talk about. Mm-hmm. And I guess you mentioned you know staying away from the election. Um, you know, again, back to, to applying this to a conversation of two people who, who are on opposite, opposite sides. Is it, you know, so let's say I'm on one side and, you know, my friend is on the other. It's, and, and a topic comes up, right? Where we're both on, on the opposite sides. Is it give him a chance to, to, to give his thoughts on, on the topic? And I go into my, you know, after that, um, so I've got a little mnemonic <laughs> that isn't in the book, but I use, I'm starting to use now. We should start by asking questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, ask. A is for ask. And ask not leading questions, not questions to try to get a point across. Just ask, be curious. Ask real questions to understand the other person. The next one is L, is Listen. But you need to listen with new ears. You need to listen for what's underneath what they're saying. And then you can start to identify what's going on with them and then ask them another question to see if they're right. Um, And affirm what you can. So that's A-L-A and the last one is R. R is respond. Finally, you can say something and maybe they'll listen to you. They'll hear it. If you can first ask you know, be curious, ask questions. Second, listen with new ears. Third, affirm what you can, agree with what you can. And then finally, you can say what your point is. And make your point in terms of the values that are important to you. Don't focus on the the person, the, the political, don't focus on the issues, focus on the values. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much as, okay, I'm just going to start spouting off all these facts about this, facts about that. It's more of how you feel about something and obviously how they feel about something right. um, rather than trying to be a winner in, in, in the fact contest of, of, you know, spitting out details and, and things like that. Facts don't convince anybody of anything. You can make a case with, for anything using facts. You just pay attention to facts and support your case. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there's actually research to show that. I mean, it's like it's so silly that we think we rely on facts will convince somebody because we it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Yeah, I see. I mean, the same thing in my in the financial world. You can make, you know, you can come up with statistics that make anything look like anything, um, and I'm sure that's that's uniform across across all different different areas. Yeah. Yeah. But if we focus on the values, I mean, we're going to agree with each other on the values. Um, we we have we will have different interpretations of them, um, 
But if we can see that when somebody says one thing, it's really similar to some of the different way that we interpret it. We say, oh, it's the same thing. It's just a different way to talk about it, a different way to think about it. And it's a way of, I think it's a way that people can come together, which is what I'm trying to do with people. I'm trying to help people come together. Yeah. Do, do you see that, you know, on the, on the outside, it seems like people are so far apart, but in reality, it's, it's not as far apart as it seems, or is there really just an enormous divide uh, between people? Well, people say that the, this is the biggest divide that we've had since the civil war. And I don't know the truth of that. Nobody has a way to prove that or disprove that. Um, but I think um, if we start to think about things in a different way, we can start to see our, our common. Um, so one of the things I talk about in my presentations, and, and uh, by the way, I, I'm willing to do these kinds of presentations for groups if anybody wants to contact me through my website. Um, so one of the, the main points of the book is to say you need to separate the person from the issue from the value. So you need to see those as three separate things. So the value is driving whatever they position they feel on the issue. But a lot of times when we vilify the person, we think the person is evil and we need to see them as a, as a worthwhile human being. I tell the story in my presentations about my aunt Dot. Um, after I'd been to seminary, I, I went to go visit my aunt and she was the last living relative of my mom. And, um, she, um, she couldn't live alone. She was the childless, the childless aunt who was there for my whole childhood. And, um, you know, she was always there taking pictures. She was always, you know, giving us gifts and taking care of us. And um, but she had gotten past my 90th birthday and she couldn't live alone anymore. And um, she had a caregiver who was Polish and from, didn't speak English very well. And the genie, her caregiver took really good care of her. Um, but my aunt um, at my visit started a rant against immigrants and how they shouldn't be allowed in the country. And, and I was like, wait a minute. Jeannie's in the room and you're talking about immigrants like this. Now, this is the way my aunt, you know, my aunt had this sort of thing where she just said whatever was on her mind. She didn't think about what she was saying, that how it would affect anybody. That you know, That's the way she was. But I, I let it get to me. And I called her. I said she was rude. I'm talking that way in front of her caregiver. And, um, and I left. And I never spoke to her again. And she died 18 months later. And I regret that because I didn't have the tools of another way to do it. I didn't have another kind of way to talk about the issues that were important. Um, and now the work that I've been doing in this book and the talks that I give, I've been able to work out a way that I could have said something to her that would have said, you know, yes, I'm a Immigration is an important issue. Yes, we need a strong country. And what about immigrants who work really hard the way Vinny does? Don't you think that people who work hard deserve to come to this country? And the way I think about it is that, you know, she may or may not have agreed with me. But I wouldn't have walked out. I wouldn't have stepped with the relationship. I would have continued the relationship. 
And that would have been a win. Even if I, even if I didn't convince her, it would have been a win to, to stay in relationship with her. So yeah. I regret that and I wish I'd had these tools. And now I'm hoping that I can help teach other people how to use these tools. Yeah. Is there, I mean, any thoughts on how to repair a relationship? Kind of what you said, if, if your aunt was still there and let's say you, you left, didn't talk to her for a period of time and the relationship is damaged. Is there a way to, to repair things after the fact? Well, someone has to take the first step. Um, and if you've got the tools, then maybe you can. I mean, it depends on how rancorous it is and how, um, how separate the relationship is. I mean, as I've been doing this work and I've been posting on social media, I hear comments from people who families have had exorcist processes for them have been excommunicated. So I mean, wow. they're like severely severed relationship, never going back. Um, but the one with my aunt was prop. I probably could have. I probably could have called her up and just, you know, said. I probably could have picked it up. She probably would never even noticed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but I had I had to do the work, um, and and people need to be willing to do it. And this this isn't easy. I mean, if it was easy, then we would already be doing it, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's that's true. That's the. I mean, I, I say that all the time. Things are hard, but the hard things are the most rewarding. You know, rewarding things that are that are out there. So yeah, what's uh what's next for you? You have another book planned? Um, well, I'm working on my newsletter, which comes out weekly, called Mending Fractured Relationships. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that's going to be my next book because um, what I do in the newsletter is I I tell stories like the story of my aunt. Um, and then I provide ideas for how to approach it in a different way. So it's a way of taking the same theory and working with it and, you know, giving examples that are concrete and real. Um, so I think that, I think that's my next project. Okay, nice. So we're just about out of time. How can someone, um, I know you mentioned newsletter, your presentations is the West, is your website the best place to, to get in touch with you? Yeah, everything's on my website. It's called, uh, persuade but no apostrophe. Okay. And we'll link to it in the show notes. And, um, and in there, there's a, there's information about where you can get my book, uh, which is on Amazon and a number of other places. If you don't like to use Amazon, um, there's also, um, information about how to book me for a speaking gig, uh, information on resources and a link to the newsletter. Great. And thank you again for being on the show. And thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.